Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamall, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I am your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike, the sound guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina, with a full jam-packed episode this week. There is a whole lot of stuff going on, uh, but as always, before we get into that, I've got a few podcast notes to share with you. Uh, actually, before we get to the podcast notes, Mike, I had to print this one out because it didn't make the actual outline. Mike, the sound guy, got a shout out on Twitter, and I feel compelled to share it. Uh, so this is actually a chain of tweets, which is why I had to print it out because the copying and pasting was a bit tedious. But a guy named at Sam Sanders is complaining about podcast quality. That's how this all started. Uh, He said, quote, I completed a 20-hour road trip this weekend, and I really just have one thing to say, and this is next in all caps, people making podcasts, stop being lazy with your levels, level out your levels so I can enjoy the product, please. Now, I am no audio person, but my understanding from Mike is that the levels are the sound waves I see on the screen in GarageBand, and the bigger they are, the louder you are, and the smaller it is, the lighter it is, et cetera, et cetera. And you're supposed to like fix those and make sure that they work properly. That is why Mike is here to make sure that you all can hear me more or less okay. So then in response to Sam's tweet, someone who is at Idlewild underscore says, I'm still dubious about podcasts after years of hosts fucking up, laughing for several minutes about fucking up and ending with, don't worry, we'll edit this out later. I don't find your unedited rambling charming, folks. It makes me extra misanthropic. Or thropic. I'm not sure how you would actually pronounce that word. I've always pronounced it thropic, but who knows? Anyhow, that prompted a response from at Sixbase, who is one of our listeners, and they say, quote, my preferred legal system fuckery podcast. I appreciate, let me put a sidebar, I appreciate the insertion of the use of fuckery because we cover criminal justice fuckery, and fuckery is an underappreciated noun. Uh, my preferred legal system fuckery podcast at Fiscamall has an actual audio engineer fixing it up, and it shows. Even the recorded in the kitchen episodes sound excellent. So kudos to you. Um, I, I will say it's not really recorded in the kitchen. It's recorded at my dining room table when we're not in studio. But uh, I wanted to share that because I was pretty nifty that Mike gets a shout out. Okay, back to the actual podcast notes. First, thank you to everybody because we are, in fact, one of the 10 finalists as part of the 13th Annual Podcast Awards in the Politics and News category. Uh, We're actually, we're going up against three different Vox Media podcasts, uh, plus six other folks. So like we've got our competition cut out for us. Uh, Now voting is turned over to their celebrity panel of judges. Uh, They've got like 500 journalists, a thousand randomly selected listeners, and a few other podcast heavies all weighing in. It's a pretty nifty thing. You can see the rules online and how how people become a part of it. But voting is going to take place over the next month. Uh, and then they're going to have a live stream uh, award show. I'll give you more details on that when it comes up. Uh, like I said, don't know if we're going to win, but at the very least, it's an honor to be nominated. I now understand why people at the Oscars say that because it actually is true. Uh, also, wanted to thank you, everyone again for still sending more stuff uh, for the Crayons to Calculators school supply drive. I need y'all to stop now. So if you haven't sent it yet, save it for next year. Uh, because the drop-off deadline for me to get it to them is this coming Friday. Uh, So I can't take any more stuff. But we're now at like six 
spins, which is like, so last podcast, we were at twice what we did in 2016. Now we're at like three times what we did in 2016. Most of the floor of my office is school supplies. Uh, so we have, we get one bin as part of the thing. We're supposed to fill this one bin and they have a whole bunch of people in the community filling one bin a piece. And then in 2016, we filled two bins. And now we're at five actual bins with a uh, cardboard box still full of stuff. So basically six bins worth of stuff. It's been a fantastic turnout. I appreciate all of you for chipping in. It's been amazing. Uh, And then the last key point. This is actually a very important podcast note. I need you all to listen very closely. We may potentially be going on hiatus for the next few weeks. We don't know what the recording situation is going to be because... Uh, I am getting a new dog. I am picking him up Monday morning after you all get this. We're recording this on Sunday, but I'm going to pick him up on Monday. Uh, And he's, gosh. So there's a story behind it. I'm not going to share the story right now because we've got 25 pages of stuff to go through. But long and short of it is it was a very spur-of-the-moment decision that was not expected. My apartment is still not ready for a pet. Um, And on top of that, when I visited him at the shelter, uh, he does not know any commands at all whatsoever. He knows to sit when he sees a treat. Uh, he knows to paw at the door when he wants to go out. But as far as like any actual verbal commands or hand signals or anything else, he knows diddly squat. So I need to figure out how to train him and train him expeditiously because he is a three-year-old boxer who is very energetic Um, so I'm terrified about what's going to happen to my apartment if I do not adequately train him, uh, prior to when we typically record on Sundays. So the odds of me going to the studio for the next couple weeks are slim. And if I'm recording from home, I don't know if he will be quiet as I'm busy talking into a microphone at my dining room table. So I don't know what's going to happen. Keep an eye on the Twitter account as far as details. I'm still taking story suggestions. I'm still doing the outlines. I'm still planning to have an episode. Uh, Just know there's a small but non-zero chance we will be on hiatus for a couple weeks as I try to train uh, Chance is his name. And if you want to know the story, we'll put in the show notes a link to the Twitter thread. I shared it uh, a couple days ago. Check that out. And uh, also, this is also going to trigger some changes to our Patreon stuff. So we used to have a Patreon tier that we had called Samson Sponsors, people that were helping to cover his vet bills when he had cancer. We're essentially going to bring that back. We're not going to change the name of the tier. You will still be show note sponsors. Uh, But if you're donating $15 or more a month, in addition to all the benefits you get for being a show note sponsor or a Law 140 lover for a few of you, you're also going to get random dog pics and me talking about my dog incessantly like an annoying dog parent because that's what we do. So I think that covers all the show notes. Speaking of the Twitter account, if you have not already done so, make sure to join the conversation online. We're on Twitter at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. If you'd like to leave us a written comment, you can do that on our website, Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you would like to become one of our patrons, our financial supporters who help keep this show going, you can do that on patreon.com slash fisk. That is patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. All right, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit of politics. I was going to skip politics. I've got all my show notes here to skip past it, but some of this stuff is just fantastically stupid. Let's start with New York Congress critter Chris Collins. He is a Republican who has been indicted because this guy is so damn dumb, he did a paint-by-numbers insider trading conspiracy. Uh, so first, 
The Daily Beast did a deep dive on this guy over a year ago, and essentially what happened was an Australian pharmaceutical company, uh, he bought stock in that company, became a member of the board, wrote legislation to help them out, and then talked his family members, his kids, his uh, chief of staff, and everyone else to invest in the company. His daughter, actually, who was in a freshman in college at the time, I think, was like a 5% stakeholder in this pharmaceutical business, which I don't know many college freshmen with millions of dollars to invest, but that's what happens when you're a Congress creator. You end up getting money through your professional grifting. Well, here's what the, uh, the New York Times has reported took place as part of this recent indictment. Quote, Representative Chris Collins was at the congressional picnic on the South Lawn of the White House last summer when he received an unexpected email from the head of a drug company in which he was heavily invested. The company's only product, an experimental treatment for multiple sclerosis, had just failed, a do-or-die scientific trial. What Mr. Collins did next, apparently in a state of panic, forms the core of a federal indictment unsealed on Wednesday that accuses him of insider trading and lying to federal agents. Federal prosecutors charged Mr. Collins with brazenly using his private information about the company to help his son and others avoid financial disaster. The charges against Mr. Collins, a New York Republican who is one of President Trump's earliest and most ardent supporters, stem from his involvement with Innate Immunotherapeutics Limited, a small drug maker based in Australia, which had no approved drugs but several well-placed allies in the capital. Within minutes of learning about the company's unsuccessful test, Mr. Collins frantically called his son, Cameron, who, in the days that followed, sold off his stock, avoiding losses of more than $570,000. And it goes on from there. Look, if you're going to do insider trading, one, you shouldn't because that's just corrupt. But on top of that, put some effort into your artifice, you know, put some pride in your work as a criminal in addition to being a Congress critter, do better. Like this is grade school level stupidity on the part of one of the president's biggest supporters on Capitol Hill, who has now decided to abandon his reelection campaign, which increases the likelihood a Democrat will take that seat in November. And then out of uh, ProPublica, we have an expose where several members of the president's golf club in Mar-a-Lago are basically running the Department of Veterans Affairs. From their story, it says, quote, last February, shortly after Peter O'Rourke became chief of staff for the Department of Veterans Affairs, he received an email from Bruce Moskowitz with his input on a new mental health initiative for the VA. Subquote, received. O'Rourke replied, I will begin a project plan and develop a timeline for action. O'Rourke treated the email as an order, but Moskowitz is not his boss. In fact, he is not even a government official. Moskowitz is a Palm Beach doctor who helps wealthy people obtain high-service concierge medical care. More to the point, he is one-third of an informal council that is exerting sweeping influence on the VA from Mar-a-Lago, President Donald Trump's private club in Palm Beach. The Troika is led by Ike Perlmutter, the reclusive chairman of Marvel Entertainment, who is a longtime acquaintance of President Trump's. The third member is a lawyer named Mark Sherman. None of them has ever served in the U.S. military or government. Yet, from a thousand miles away, they have leaned on VA officials and steered policies affecting millions of Americans. They have remained hidden except to a few VA insiders who have come to call them the Mar-a-Lago crowd. Perlmutter, Moskowitz, and Sherman declined to be interviewed and fielded questions through a crisis communications consultant. I shouldn't laugh, but that's fucking hilarious to me that you have the Trump administration, which just like, you know, bounces from crisis to crisis to crisis several times a day because our president is a fucking nut. 
uh, and they actually decided they needed a crisis communications consultant to deal with questions from the press. Uh, in a statement, they downplayed their influence, insisting that nobody is obligated to act on their counsel. Subquote, at all times, we offered our help and advice on a voluntary basis, seeking nothing at all in return, they said. While we were always willing to share our thoughts, we did not make or implement any type of policy, possess any authority over agency decisions, or direct government officials to take any actions. To the extent anyone thought our role was anything other than that, we don't believe it was the result of anything we said or did. I bet. I'm sure you just kind of randomly talk to a chief of staff by email with uh, suggestions and they send a response back saying, okay, we're going to put together a plan of action for you. And you don't respond. Wait, wait, wait. That was just my advice. I'm not giving you an order. You know, that's how that normally would work if you truly weren't trying to run the government. But this is just part of this whole, you know, it's really a culture of corruption at this point. This is what Donald Trump and his minions have done to the GOP and what the feckless, spineless, you know, gutter trash Republicans in Congress covering for him have enabled. It's ridiculous. So I just want to get both of those out there. We'll give you links to both of the stories in the show notes. It's fantastically crazy, uh, you know, that this type of stuff is allowed to happen. And no one's doing anything at all about it because, you know, hey, fuck it. This is Donald Trump's administration. Uh, let's get into some of the criminal justice fuckery because we got a lot of it this week. Oh, before we get into that, in the Law 140 section at the end of the podcast, I should have said this at the beginning, sorry. We're going to talk about entrapment. That's going to be what this is about. It's going to be about a specific story that we'll mention midway through the criminal justice fuckery notes. And then I'm going to give you some of the law on entrapment and why something that is uh, publicly shitty is not legally shitty. Well, at least not the way the Supreme Court currently interprets it. I, I personally think it's legally shitty, but the judges disagree. All right, into criminal justice fuckery. We don't have anything substantive from the courts this week, but in general research news, uh, there's an analysis piece on the Juvenile Justice Information Exchange written by a staffer with the R Street Institute, which I've mentioned before is a conservative think tank with uh, what I would consider uh, appropriate concern for how fucked up our criminal justice system is. From that piece, some snippets, quote, Bill Dorsey works as a shift supervisor at the Ada County Juvenile Justice Detention Center in Boise, Idaho. Outside of his daily duties, Dorsey also provides a valuable service to the youths held in detention. He teaches music. By providing guitar, mandolin, and drumming lessons, Dorsey creates a space for kids to learn skills and find their passion by engaging in healthy communal activities. Since Dorsey began his informal musical instruction, the detention center now incorporates a healthy hobbies program that includes gardening and fly fishing. Traditionally, recreation-based treatment programs like the one Dorsey runs are geared toward people with disabilities, injuries, or illnesses. Using arts and crafts, drama, music, dance, sports, and community outings, recreational therapists help maintain or improve a patient's physical, social, and emotional well-being. But increasingly, programs like the Healthy Hobbies program offered in Boise are using the same methods to address the needs of kids who have engaged in criminal behavior. These programs focus on cultivating life skills in juveniles that will benefit them once they re-enter society. And they go into further detail from there, but these are the types of programs that help reduce recidivism. They stop people from reoffending because they have things to do on the outside once they're out. And they no longer find value in being locked up. 
Now, we'll note, a lot of the same stuff used to be available for adult people in detention, in uh, incarceration, being in jail, prison, whatever. But the 1994 crime bill passed with bipartisan supermajorities uh, eliminated most of those programs. So this is part and parcel of how our public policies have veered in a course that is fantastically dumb. I know I've used that phrase several times in just the 20 minutes we've been recording, but we do stuff that makes no logical fucking sense, keeping in mind that the overwhelming majority of people in prison are eventually going to be released. Most people are going to be back in society. They need to have things to look forward to on the outside. They need to have skills that they can use. They need to have hobbies that they can develop. Uh, And we just don't do that. We just say, fuck it. We lock you up for a few years, and then we're surprised when you get out and you end up doing something stupid again. Uh, In state-by-state criminal justice fuckery, we start in Arkansas, out of England. From that story, uh, this is going to be the first rule of Fisk, by the way, our very first story. For those of you unfamiliar with the rules, the first rule of Fisk is that police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. From that one, it says, quote, An Arkansas police officer was fired a day after a video posted to social media showed him telling a group of black men they don't belong in his city. The England Police Department confirmed in a one-sentence news release that Officer Michael Moore was fired on Wednesday. In the Facebook video posted by England native Demarcus Bunch, he and his cousin accused Moore of following them on July 21st while they were in town filming a music video. When they introduced themselves to Officer Moore, he could be seen in the video saying, You don't belong in my city. I know who my people are. I have never seen you here before, and I know almost everybody here. Uh, The men said they filed a formal complaint with the police department, but two weeks later they had not received any updates. In response, Bunch posted the video, which had more than 37,000 views and 1,000 shares as of Friday. Moore was fired the next day. It's almost like the police are more concerned about the media exposure than they were about the conduct of their officers. Uh, So that's out of Arkansas. In California, we have several stories Oh, I'm wrong. We only have two. Wow, that's a shock. California usually has a bunch. Only two stories out of California this week. Uh, The first one is Los Angeles, where, you know, you hear stories about how California is bankrupt, and I understand why. You know, I've mentioned before here in North Carolina that police can get away with whatever they want because Democrats love public sector unions and Republicans love law and order. So if you're a police group represented by a public sector union, you really can do whatever the fuck you want. California takes that, dials that up all the way to 10. So hear this story. I'm going to give you some snippets, but there's a program uh, called The Bounce. That's the, that's the term we're going to hear here in a minute. But it starts, quote, before Michelle Moore, and this is, it could be Michael, I guess. There's no A in it. So you had Michael Moore, the guy in Arkansas, different person, from the Michelle or Mikel or Michael Moore in Los Angeles. Uh, But he's the police chief for the Los Angeles Police Department. So before he was promoted to become the L.A. police chief in June, he took a brief, highly unusual retirement. He left as chief of operations for only a few weeks before rejoining the force in the same job at the same pay. But the move provided him with a financial windfall, a lump sum retirement payment, of $1.27 million from the city. 
Moore 58 received the money thanks to his enrollment in the city's Deferred Retirement Option Plan, or DROP, which pays veteran cops and firefighters their pensions in addition to their salaries for the last five years of their careers. The extra pension payments go into a special account that the employee receives at the end of those five years so long as they formally retire. Moore said in an interview that the plan to have him retire and then return almost immediately to work was proposed by former Chief Charlie Beck. Moore returned through a rarely used mechanism known as the bounce, which allows the chief of police to bring a retired officer back for up to a year if their work is so specialized they can't quickly be replaced. Now I'm going to note, finding someone to be a chief operations officer is not that specialized. It's not. You're an administrator. That's your job. It's not like you're doing fucking forensics or that sort of thing. Uh, But it continues, quote, after Moore retired, the rules required him to stay away for at least 30 days. Moore said he took a road trip across the country with his wife, skiing at Breckenridge in Colorado, and visiting a daughter in Nashville, before returning to his $299,000 per year job in March. So this guy was already on salary, got a pension, got $1.27 million from this retirement fund, came back immediately, and is now making a third of a million dollars every single year, plus benefits, as a lackey of the taxpayers. That's out of L.A. That, those numbers are astonishing. That's eye-popping figures. Uh, at a Union City, you have family values at work. I shouldn't say that. Maybe this kid's just rebelling. I don't know. Uh, so a teenage kid was arrested Wednesday for beating the everlasting shit out of a 71-year-old Sikh man in uh, Monteca, California. And it turns out he is the son of the Union City police chief. Uh, Quote, surveillance footage from a nearby home released by the Manteca Police Department allegedly shows Tyrone Keith McAllister, 18, the son of Union City Police Chief Daryl McAllister, and a 16-year-old boy confronting Sabit Singh Nat, who is taking his daily walk Monday. Footage shows two people walk up to Nat at around 6 a.m. when one of the individuals suddenly kicks him to the ground. The attacker, identified by police as Tyrone McAllister, and another assailant then walk out of frame, leaving Nat writhing in pain on the ground. The video then shows the suspect identified as Tyrone McAllister charging back and delivering at least three kicks to Nat's head and upper body before yelling something inaudible and fleeing the scene. I usually don't try to blame kids for their parents' mistakes, so it seems like I shouldn't blame parents for their kids' mistakes. Uh, But you got to wonder what this kid was taught growing up that he decides to just violate someone's rights willy-nilly. So those are only two stories out of California. I'm actually shocked that there's not more. Uh, Out of Colorado, in El Paso County, this is the third time we have mentioned this exact same county just in the past month. Uh, But this is a reminder that the process is the punishment most of the time for low-level offenses, as the taxpayers are going to have to shell out a fuckload of money because someone was arrested and given bail but wasn't released because she couldn't come up with $55. From the story, it says, quote, A past practice of keeping people in jail solely because they couldn't pay $55 likely will cost El Paso County. County commissioners will decide Tuesday whether to approve a $60,000 payout to end a lawsuit filed by the American Civil Liberties Union. The ACLU sued on behalf of Jasmine Still, a Colorado Springs woman who spent more than 25 extra days in jail, despite a court granting her pretrial release because she couldn't pay a $55 fee to the county. Still's extra time in jail kept her apart from her newborn, and child custody proceedings were initiated against her during that time. 
the mother of three who was in her 20s, ultimately decided to plead guilty to a felony drug charge to fight for custody of her children instead, costing her the opportunity to accept a misdemeanor plea that had depended on her being employed. Think about how fucked up that is. You get arrested. Judge says, okay, you can go. You can't pay the $55, so they keep you in jail for a month, 25 extra days. That's practically a month. You lose your job because you don't show up to work for four weeks. Then on top of that, taxpayers are paying to house you because you have to pay for the facility, the electricity, the water, the guards, everything else. And then on top of all of that, because it's flagrantly unconstitutional, you're going to have to shell out sixty grand to make the lawsuit go away for violating this person's rights because now she's going to potentially lose custody of her kids because you forced her into destitution, essentially. Uh, it's pretty fucked up. That's out of Colorado and Florida. Florida is the state where we have a lot of stuff this week. We got one, two, three, four, five, five stories out of Florida. So we're going to start with the statewide stuff because it's a reminder that how we treat incarceration is a business, even when it is done by the government. Uh, so there's a long read on the Department of Correction and how they made millions of dollars by selling music players to inmates. Your family would buy the music player, the inmates could download songs at $2 a piece, or the family members could download them for you. And it was a way to, to keep the prisoners pacified so you don't end up with behavioral infractions. We've talked in prior podcasts about how these types of things are beneficial to maintaining order within the prison. Well, now, after having this program for seven years, uh, the state said, LOL, fuck you. We're confiscating the music players that you've spent money to buy. We're confiscating the music that you've spent money to buy. We're giving you new tablets, these JPay tablets we talked about with the, the quote-unquote hackers in Utah. Uh, and oh, by the way, your music can't transfer, so you got to buy it all from scratch. Uh, from the story. Well, you know what? I'm not going to give you the quotes. I'm going to give you a link. Go read it. But that's the gist of it. So the Department of Corrections signed a new contract with JPay, leaving their prior provider. And as part of that, they're confiscating all the old music players, giving out new JPay tablets, but they're going to have to buy all their music from scratch, the inmates. And the reason why they do this is that the state gets a chunk of the money. This is all about raising money so that they can run the government without you paying taxes. It all comes down to people not wanting to pay taxes and government employees figuring out how to run the government on the cheap. And this is how they do it. They exploit the fuck out of prisoners, poor people, and minorities. All right, so that's the statewide stuff. Out of Biscayne Park, there's always more shit in Biscayne Park. You know, we've talked about these guys a few times where the chief deliberately targeted minorities uh, as part of a – he framed a black teen for some burglaries to boost his stats – that triggered an indictment and subsequent investigation, and now the more you dig, the more shit you find. So for that story, it says, quote, Amid a widening probe into cops framing innocent people in the small village of Biscayne Park, prosecutors have thrown out the burglary convictions of a man who wound up deported to Haiti after serving five years in a state prison. The wrongful conviction is the latest revelation in a handful of cases that have exposed blatantly racist policing tactics during the tenure of ex-chief Raimundo Ateziano, who abruptly resigned four years ago. He faces an upcoming federal trial on civil rights violations based on allegations that he ordered some officers to falsely arrest several black men for burglaries to improve the village's crime statistics. Three former officers have already admitted in other cases to making false arrests. Two other suspects wrongfully arrested in 2013 and 2014. Let me pause. You got to put suspects in quote because these people were framed. Uh, had their cases dropped within weeks of their arrests. But not so with Clarence Desrolu, 
who went to Florida. I'm probably fucking up that's pronunciation. It's French, and I don't speak French. Uh, so there's like an E-A-U-X, whichever the hell you pronounce that. Uh, Desrolo, Desrolau, I, I don't know. Fuck it. Any French people, if you want to weigh in, you can tell me. Uh, he went to Florida prison and stayed there for five years. And then when he was released, he was handed over to immigration who sent him to Haiti, kicked him out of the country, uh, all based on a fabrication. Quote, it is the office's position that the charges brought against Clarence Desrolu cannot be substantiated and require that the judgment and sentence be vacated. Miami-Dade Assistant State Attorney Justin Funk wrote in a final memo on the case. Uh, out of Jacksonville, this is... <laughs> I shouldn't laugh because it's not funny, but when you figure... When you get the details, it's like, of course... Um, so a kid, Jacksonville Police, has this thing called the Jacksonville Police Athletic League, which is a way of trying to get kids to like police. They sponsor a youth basketball league. Well, one particular youth in the Youth Athletic League uh, was bouncing a basketball. His name is Fatai Jomo. He's an honor roll student. Uh, and because he was bouncing the basketball at the Youth Basketball League, sponsored by the Jacksonville Police, uh, he was arrested. Yes, this is true. I'm not making this up. As stupid as this sounds, this is exactly what happened. From the story, and this is from a TV station, so it's video, but I've got the transcript. Uh, quote, a little girl came up to me and said, hey, excuse me, your son is being arrested for dribbling a basketball. I said, you can't be serious. That is a Bunmi Borsati, the kid's mom. Uh, Fatayi Jomo, an honorable student, was not arrested, but he now knows what it feels like to be in handcuffs. And I'm going to pause here. That's media editorializing. If you're in handcuffs and you're not free to leave, you're under arrest. I don't care what anyone else tells you. If you're detained to the point that you can't leave voluntarily, which especially happens when you're in handcuffs, you're under arrest. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. So Borsade, the mom, continues, quote, The officer who handcuffed my son looked at me and said he was being disrespectful. Borisati said. I said, well, why didn't you come and tell me? I'm his mom. Well, the reason why she, they didn't tell her, of course, is because that would have deprived this particular officer of proving to a teen boy bouncing a basketball at a basketball athletic league how big the officer's dick was and how he should be promptly genuflected before. Uh, this is so stupid. I'm just, I'm going to give you the link. It's dumb. It is fantastically dumb that you sponsor a basketball league to help improve community relations. And then you get pissed off at a kid bouncing a basketball and decide to put him in handcuffs. It's so stupid. Uh, out of Marion County in Florida, we do have good news. Don't let it be said that I don't report good news. A uh, officer saved a four month old child from dying. From that story, it says, quote, Jeremy Nix was already winding down near the end of his shift Wednesday evening when he heard someone blaring their horn. The Marion County Sheriff's Office canine deputy thought it was some annoyed rush hour driver sounding their displeasure, but then he realized a white Hyundai was trying to get his attention. Nicole Crowell's four-month-old son, Kingston, was in trouble. Nix told Crowell's sister, who was driving, to pull off the side of the road. Dashcam video from the incident shows Crowell jump out of the passenger side of the car carrying a limp baby and nothing but diapers. Nix meets her and takes the baby. The officer starts CPR on the little boy, but the boy does not respond. I heard his, this one breath that was very faint. I turned and I remember thinking, I don't hear sirens. I don't hear nobody coming. I don't have time, Officer Nix said. The video shows him get back in his patrol car with the baby and take off. So, quote, I just gripped him as tight as I could and I put it in drive and I just went. Nix pulled up to the local hospital with sirens blaring, which got everyone's attention at the emergency room. Doctors were able to get the baby breathing again, 
but he later went to UF Health Shands Hospital in Gainesville for further treatment. Basically, if this officer had not responded as he did in such a timely fashion, the kid would have died. So he saved the baby's life. Kudos to Jeremy Nix of the Marion County Sheriff's Office. Out of Sarasota, this is <laughs> this is funny. I should laugh at this one. Uh, this is not a police fuckery story. This is a political fuckery story because there is a candidate for state house, and I'm just going to give you the story because it's fucking hilarious. Like, I respect the hustle. I'm going to say that on the front end. I respect the hustle. Quote, the trouble started for the Republican candidate for the Florida House when she was accused of lying about her college degree. It got worse after Melissa Howard of Sarasota claimed to have flown to her alma mater for proof, then posted a photo of herself with a framed diploma. And it all came to a head when the school, Miami University of Ohio, asserted that Howard was not one of its graduates and that the diploma she touted was bogus. The diploma purported to prove Howard had a Bachelor of Science degree in marketing. The Ohio school does not offer such a degree. The diploma also said she graduated in 1996. Miami University General Counsel Robin Parker said Howard was not enrolled that year. She was at Miami University from 1990 to 1994, and she did not graduate. Howard did not respond directly to requests for comment. Her campaign consultant, Anthony Pettuccini, said Howard's husband had suffered a cardiac event. She is focused on him right now, not on fake news. This is hilarious. Now, let me pause here. People that talk about their credentials, I don't know if y'all realize, this shit is very easily verifiable. There's this thing called the National Student Clearinghouse, and there are other organizations that do the same thing, where you can pay like five bucks and see when someone was enrolled and whether or not they graduated. It's used by employers all the time. I have to use it when I hire staff to make sure that they are, in fact, actually in law school when I bring in interns. I don't worry about it with lawyers, because I know that if I'm hiring you, I already know you're a lawyer already. Um, but it's a super common thing. So the idea that you can lie about your academic credentials and get away with it just shows you don't really understand how technology works. But it's crazy to me that she's running as a Republican for this office and she's embarrassed about her lack of a degree when she's in Trump's Republican Party. I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. So those are the stories out of Florida. Good luck to that particular candidate in her run for the state house. Out of Georgia, we got a couple here. In Rockdale County, there's not a whole lot of information available on this one yet, but, quote, a Rockdale County deputy was arrested Friday. An investigation is underway. The Rockdale County Sheriff's Office told Channel 2 Action News that Deputy Deidre Hall was charged with sexual battery. Officials said the arrest stemmed from a complaint with the office's Human Resources Department. An internal investigation has been launched, and Hall has been placed on administrative leave. That's it. There's nothing else on that story. Hopefully the media will uh, get some more information in the future. Out of Spalding County, this is a uh, really a third rule of Fisk moment because – well, let me pause. I, I'm going to do a, a thing here. It started this morning. It's probably going to continue when we're done recording. Um, there are a lot of police who are racist. We've talked about them repeatedly on this podcast over the course of the past year. I've got dozens upon dozens upon dozens of stories, probably hundreds at this point, but I don't keep track. Uh, but here's another one. So, quote, two Spalding County sheriff's deputies have been terminated after allegations of inappropriate behavior online. 11 Alive, that's WXIA 11, reached out to the sheriff's office after receiving a tip about online content from Howard Reese Cosner and Jesse A. Jones. The tip said some of the content espoused racial views and Nazi sympathies. 
When asked to confirm or provide a comment about the allegations, Sheriff Daryl Dix released the following statement, quote, both have been fired. Their poor choices should in no way be construed to reflect the beliefs of the Spalding County Sheriff's Office, deputies, detention officers, or staff. We pride ourselves in our relationships with our community and in no way condone the former employees' actions or opinions. Now I'm going to note, they gave you that bullshit statement, but... The comments made online predated their hiring by the sheriff's office. Now, they continued while they were there, but they were ample comments online before they got hired, and they got hired anyway. So don't feed me this bullshit about how you pride yourself on all this stuff when you're not putting in the work on the front end to make sure that you don't have racists with badges. Uh, story continues. In one exchange, Costner allegedly described, quote, racism as normal and not a bad thing. He also expressed admiration for George Rockwell, who founded the American Nazi Party. Quote, I'll say this, I am extremely right-winged and I view racism as normal. Just read the definition of racism and it's not a bad thing. That's my own belief. I went from being a libertarian conservative to more authoritarian. Uh, and it goes on from there. And separately, Jones, Jones' online profile included the motto, Hitler did nothing wrong. He also liked to connect with people who had as their profile pictures Dylan Roof. Now, Roof is that guy, if you'll recall, shot up the church in Charleston, South Carolina, trying to start a race war. Uh, and of course, every criminal has a mama. A woman claiming to be Costner's mother said her son's online comments do not reflect who she believes him to be as a person. This is the type of moment where I invoke the Pope Hat rule of goats. If you're not familiar with Ken White, who runs the Pope Hat blog, he has a rule of goats. And that is that even if you fuck a goat, ironically, you're still a goat fucker. And that applies in this case. If you're going to comment on social media about all of these assorted racist neo-Nazi commentary, doesn't matter how good a person you are in real life, you're still a goat fucker. Uh, out of Illinois and Chicago, this is going to be the story that will be part of our Law 140. When you can't solve the normal crimes, you create crimes that you can. Uh, Norfolk Southern Railroad has apologized for cooperating with Chicago PD to use a bait truck loaded with designer shoes as a way of trying to lure potential thieves in an impoverished neighborhood in Chicago. Norfolk Southern issued a statement on Friday saying it recognized the recent operation subquote eroded trust between law enforcement and the community and said it doesn't plan to use this method in the future. Activists allege that in early August, the partially open truck said to be filled with boxes of Nike sneakers was parked near a group of children playing basketball in Southwest Chicago's Englewood neighborhood in an attempt to lure neighborhood residents into committing a crime. Police and undercover police cars were parked nearby. And I'm going to note, this kind of is a first rule of Fisk thing because people in the neighborhood had it recorded on their mobile phones as well. Uh, and here's the funny shit. A Chicago police spokesman said the department was not involved in planning the operation, while a Norfolk Southern Railroad police spokesman told the Chicago Tribune the operation was used to draw out people who had allegedly been breaking into and stealing from freight containers and rail yards nearby with the assistance of Chicago PD. That's bad wording on the sentence. They cooperated with Chicago PD in planning the event, not that Chicago PD was helping people break into the freight cars. Uh, the railroad police spokesman said three people, aged 21 to 59, were arrested over the two-day bait truck operation. The Cook County State's Attorney's Office said Friday that it has since dropped the burglary charges against them. So so keep that story in mind. We're going to talk about the entrapment defense uh, in the Law 140 segment here in a bit. In Kansas, out of Overland Park, this is... <laughs> 
Uh, this is funny too. It's not funny because it's official misconduct, but I, I want you to listen to how the media characterizes it. And then I've got the zinger at the end, which will make everything make more sense. Uh, this is from the media story. Quote, Overland Park has dismissed 200 traffic tickets and refunded $4,000 in fines over an unusual traffic ticket scandal. As a result, three police officers resigned last week, according to Chief Frank Donchez. What the officers did is a little hard to understand. And I'm putting that in air quotes because you're going to realize why they did it at the end. Uh, Subquote, they were writing seatbelt tickets instead of other tickets, said Donchez. So even if a driver was speeding or ran a red light, these three officers would just write a ticket for not wearing a seatbelt. The question is why? Subquote, I don't know the motivation behind it, Donchez says. It is puzzling to say the least. Donchez says a fellow officer alerted commanders to the scheme. Investigators then checked dash cam video and turned up evidence that suggests the officers probably knew they were doing something wrong. Most of the dash cam video had no audio, meaning they turned off their microphones. So that's the story. And you have to wonder, if you run a stop sign or a red light or whatever, why would the police officer give you a seatbelt ticket instead? So I did some Googling, and you will be shocked to find, quote, all three officers were working overtime paid for by a seatbelt enforcement grant from the Kansas Department of Transportation. So these dumb fucks who would have gotten paid the exact same amount of overtime regardless of what type of ticket they wrote are deliberately writing seatbelt tickets with this notion that it's going to help ensure their grant will continue and they will keep getting their overtime. Incentives matter, people, especially among dumb as fuck police officers who are doing whatever they want without any accountability from superiors. Uh, Out of Maryland, in Baltimore, we've got the both the first and fourth rule of Fisk. First rule, of course, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. Fourth rule, The Wire was a documentary. From the story, it says, quote, Baltimore police officer was suspended with pay by the department. That's paid vacation. After a viral video emerged showing him repeatedly punching a man in the face before taking him to the ground. Interim Police Commissioner Gary Tuggle said he was, subquote, deeply disturbed by the video and that the incident is under investigation. Police said a second officer on the scene at the time of the incident was placed on administrative duties pending the outcome of the investigation. Attorney Warren Brown, who is representing the man who was punched, identified his client as Deshaun McGreer. Brown said McGreer was not being charged with a crime, but was taken to a hospital and was having x-rays taken of his jaw, nose, and ribs for suspected fractures from the altercation. Brown said McGreer had a previous run-in with the same police officer, Officer Arthur Williams, in June. That resulted in McGreer being charged with assaulting the officer, disorderly conduct, obstructing and hindering, and resisting arrest. Brown said that in that incident, as well as the incident on Saturday, McGreer was targeted without justification by the officer. The police department said the incident Saturday began after two officers stopped McGreer, let him go, that's a key point, then approached him again to give him a citizen contact sheet. When he was asked for his identification, the situation escalated when he refused, the department said in a statement. The police officer then struck the man several times. Now I'm going to pause. This is bystander video. It's worse than the statement sounds. You essentially have McGreer asking the guy, what the fuck are you bugging me for? You just let me go. What is going on? And then the officer pushes him against a fence and puts like his uh, arm crosswise against the dude's chest. So you see McGreer try to push the guy's arm out of the way because he's been let go. He's doing nothing wrong. And Officer Williams just hammers him, punches the shit out of him repeatedly. 
eventually pushes him to the ground, has the guy pinned to the asphalt, continues to punch the shit out of him. You see blood on the video as the guy is bleeding, basically asking what the fuck is going on. I didn't do anything. To McGrew's credit, he didn't even try to fight back. You never see him try to punch the deputy or push the deputy off of him. Um, and the, the other guy standing there, the other officer actually tries to restrain McGreer, even though McGreer is not moving. So you got to wonder what kind of pansy-fied bastard just basically tries to stop an unresisting person from not having the shit beat out of them by your colleague who clearly is violating the Constitution. Uh, but we'll give you a link to that story. Watch the video. It's worse than it sounds, if you can believe that. And take it from there. Also out of Baltimore, I, I don't know if this qualifies as the fourth rule of Fisk. It might, you know, if you if you look at uh, the second season. But this is when they're talking about antiquated technology and shit like that. Or was that the first season? I can't remember. Don't I know the third season is the school stuff. I know that for sure. The second season was the dock workers, if I remember correctly. But I don't remember. Yeah, I don't know. Sorry, Mike is giving me a look like I don't know my my uh, the wire. But I don't. I mean, I don't really remember all the details. It's been a while since I've seen it. The show went off the air like fucking 10 years ago. Um, anyhow, so they are using Lotus Notes as their technology. You know, this is an app that was created back in 1989. It hasn't even been called Lotus Notes since at least 2012. IBM took it over and chucked a bunch of the, the brand and called it IBM Notes. But they're still using this antiquated-ass system, and they're paying a consultant $176,800 a year to continue trying to keep the system running because it's so fucking antiquated and doesn't work well. And it would be cheaper in the long run if they just moved everything over to a more modern set of technology that would be uh, future proof, if you will. But they're going to keep spending money on it anyway. I had some quotes I'm going to give you, but I'm not going to bother because it's already 45 minutes in on the podcast and we've still got 12 more pages to go. Just know that it's in the show notes if you want to read it. Uh, at a Towson, this was another case of the process being the punishment. A Baltimore County woman paid the price for her breakfast choice the day her daughter was born. Subquote, I was in labor. I was sitting in the bed. I was having contractions. I was on a pitocin drip. And the doctor came in and said, you've tested positive for opiates, Mother Elizabeth Eden said. Eden never imagined she would test positive for opiates when she delivered the baby last spring. She had heard in a school health class that consuming poppy seeds could cause a false positive, but that was certainly not on her mind when she gave birth. Subquote, I said, well, can you test me again? I ate a poppy seed bagel this morning for breakfast, and the hospital said, no, you've been reported to the state. It doesn't take much to test positive for drugs after eating a poppy seed bagel. In fact, studies have shown that just a teaspoon of poppy seeds can cause your levels to be at 1,200 nanograms per milliliter. Now keep that part in mind. 1,200 nanograms per milliliter. It continues, quote, a positive test is 300 nanograms per milliliter. According to Dr. Judith Rossiter-Pratt, the chief of the Department of OBGYN, she explains they use that lower threshold as a means to catch as many true drug misusers as possible. So, quote, what you can see on this graph is that if you set the bar here, you would only identify true positives, but you would miss quite a few individuals who did use drugs and were considered screened negative. Because of her breakfast choice, Eden's daughter had to stay in the hospital on hold for five days, and mom was assigned a state caseworker for a home checkup. Go back and re-listen to that. The hospital deliberately uses a threshold where you would not test positive. They treat it as a positive test anyway, 
so that they can investigate you. But there is no real investigation. They just say you've been reported to the state. They're going to confiscate your daughter for five days and send a caseworker to go raid your life. That is insane. That is institutionalized discrimination. Now, in this case, this woman was white, so it didn't you know, affect her aside from the trauma of having to be without her newborn baby for five days. But can you imagine if she was fucking black? Jesus, I don't even know how that would turn out. Turned out her poppy seed defense was considered legitimate by the state. The case was closed. She was never charged. But this whole thing is wildly outrageous. Uh, out of Michigan, in Clare County, we have locking up octogenarians to own the libs. From that story, it says, quote, Saltzman, this is the name of this particular grandmother, had been a medical cannabis patient for about four years when Clare County Sheriff's Deputy Ashley Gruno visited her home. According to court records, Deputy Gruno was there to locate Saltzman's great-granddaughter, who had lost her phone and ID when she smelled marijuana while on Saltzman's porch. Saltzman told the deputy the marijuana was hers. She also revealed that while she was a licensed medical marijuana patient, she had let her recommendation expire. The officer then seized several pipes, four joints, and one purple jar with less than an eighth of an ounce of cannabis. The deputy then searched the octogenarian's bedroom, handcuffed her, and took her off to jail for the night. The charges were dropped after the night in jail. That is insane. You're arresting this 80-year-old woman on something that, at worst, she should have gotten a citation. Let's assume if you want to be the typical war on drugs, make money off people for smoking weed, you give them a citation. You don't take an elderly lady to the jail and force her to stay there overnight, especially when she's using the marijuana for her arthritis, which gets aggravated in the cold, which jails tend to be. So that was out of Michigan in Minnesota, out of Minneapolis. This is a story where I've got so many quotes, I can't actually get to it. I'm going to just give you the link to it. So I've talked before about Tony Webster. He is a fantastic journalist from up that way. He did a lot of reporting on the extrajudicial summary execution of Philando Castile. Uh, well, in this particular case, there is an elected official named Carol Becker, who is on the Minneapolis Board of Estimate and Taxation, whatever the fuck that is. And there is a blog called Wedge Live with an exclamation point on the end that has been covering local politics and has criticized her periodically. So this politician decided that she's going to file trademark paperwork to do business as Wedge Live, hoping that that will allow her to take over the social media accounts, Patreon and everything else of this blog that has been critical of her. So Webster has he's at Webster on Twitter, by the way. He has got a story up on his website. We're going to give you a link in the show notes. He's got a lot of follow-up quotes. But here's the thing. My, one of my concentrations in law school was intellectual property. I'm not a trademark IP lawyer, but I do know some basics. And one of them is that when you start using a trademark in commerce, which a blog is, even if you're not making money on it, you acquire common law trademark rights to that particular trademark automatically. And that trademark takes priority over subsequent users of the mark if those people try to register it. You can file a protest with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office saying, look, I had this mark first. So if the uh, politician, she's already filed this U.S. PTO paperwork, which ain't cheap. So she either did it herself, which would be dumb, or she paid an attorney to do it, which would be dumb. You're either dumb for doing it on your own or dumb for spending money to do it when you're going to lose. But if Edwards decides to challenge that trademark, he's almost certainly going to win. But there's an added wrinkle because Becker is an elected official. She is part of the government. That means by doing this, she has almost definitely violated Edwards' First Amendment rights. This is like the New York Times reporting on the government something that it doesn't like. 
and then Donald Trump tries to go register New York Times as his trademark, uh, that's going to end up trying to chill speech, which is going to be a violation of your rights, which means if Edwards were smart, he could find a pro bono attorney and file a suit under Section 1983 and probably get paid a fair sum of money for it. Uh, plus, there's also some extortion pieces to this because Becker, the politician, said she would turn over the trademarks uh, if, quote, certain conditions were met. It's all scandalously bad. I'll give you the link. Uh, of New Jersey in Passaic County. This is actually one of those things where – so I do a lot of research separate from the stories that you all send me because I want to make sure that everything is well-sourced. If someone tweets something, I want to make sure that it's actually happened and that it's recent and everything else. I was looking for a story – on a tweet about an out-of-control, off-duty cop in Passaic County, and I didn't find anything. But in the middle of it, I found this story. Michael Coppola was arrested Thursday for allegedly buying cocaine and having it shipped to a Passaic County post office box. Detectives ensnared Coppola by putting a package filled with imitation cocaine in the box in response to a recent order. Now, who is Michael Coppola? Uh, He is the chief of police for the Palisades Interstate Parkway Police Department. So your own police chief was ordering Coke online. So that was out of New Jersey, in New York, out of New York City. This is another first rule of Fisk moment. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. Uh, We've talked in several prior podcasts about this teenage girl who was arrested for alleged marijuana possession. Two deputies raped her in her car and then tossed her on the side of the road. When she went to the hospital to report the rape and get a rape kit done, the union sent uh, their thugs to the hospital room to try and intimidate her into not pressing charges. Then the officers tried to argue that the sex was consensual. When, when you're raping someone in handcuffs after being arrested, you can't consent because you're being coerced by virtue of the fact you're in custody. Uh, anyhow, so there's a lawsuit taking place, of course, and as part of that... One of the attorneys was sending a subpoena to the victim trying to get certain pictures and stuff that she claims to have taken of her injuries. Well, normally, when you're doing discovery, the attorneys exchange those documents themselves. If I needed to subpoena something from someone I'm suing, uh, I would send it to their attorney. Likewise, if let's use the Durham County Sheriff's Office as an example. If they wanted to subpoena stuff from me, they wouldn't send it to my client. They would send it to me directly. Well, they sent a particular guy who – it's called a process server, basically someone who is a court official with the documents saying, here you go, you've been served. And this guy just doesn't know how to conduct himself. From the story, it says, quote, a young woman who says she was raped by two former NYPD detectives was called a stupid bitch by a process server who claimed to be from the sheriff's office. This isn't harassment. The victim, who goes by Anna Chambers on social media, tweeted Wednesday evening when she posted cell phone video of the encounter. In the video, a beefy bearded man inside Chambers' front gate records her as she walks up her stoop. She asks him to leave. Subquote, don't tell me what to do. I'm from the sheriff's office. I can do whatever I want, the man said after indicating that he left a court subpoena for her. When Chambers orders him to leave her property, the man says, go screw yourself. He continues to take video of the teen, sidebar, which is really creepy. Uh, When she apparently covers her face, he asks what she's afraid of. Subquote, this isn't Russia. I'm not the KGB. You stupid bitch. The man was heard mumbling before the video ends. And they also got a separate video 
of him yelling at the girl's parents, calling them Russian liars and a bunch of other stuff. So we give you a link to the story. Watch the videos. Once again, it's a situation where the videos are worse than the stories, if you can believe that. Uh, out of North Carolina. God, I got to speed through these. Fuck, we're almost an hour already. Um, okay, we're going we're gonna to speed read through geez, like five, six more pages. All this stuff's in the show notes. So if there's a story that particularly piques your interest, just know that it's there. Uh, so the North Carolina, we have a thing called the Alcoholic Beverage Control Commission, and they run ABC stores. They run actual liquor stores run by the government. Well, it turns out that there's rampant mismanagement because that's what happens when you have the government run shit. Uh, we have $11.3 million of money wasted due to poor handling of contracts, according to an audit where contractors would just show up and say, hey, I need money, and the commission would pay it out. Uh, we also spent $2.1 million in tax money by renting warehouse space that was never actually used. They just kept it empty for seven years. And this corruption has been so pervasive that it stretches back from today all the way back to 2004, which means under Republican Governor Pat McCrory, Democrats Bev Perdue and Mike Easley, this type of shit was going on. So we'll give you a link to that. Uh, out of Aberdeen, North Carolina... So a guy who was killed last month by Moore County deputies where they claimed that he was trying to shoot at them and that's why they just had to kill him. Uh, turns out they lied and they're now admitting that they lied. Quote, a man who was killed last month by law enforcement officers called to his Moore County home apparently, and it's fantastic word choice apparently there, apparently did not fire his weapon, contradicting initial official reports that he had started shooting at the officers when they arrived at the scene. State Bureau of Investigation has been looking into the events surrounding the death of Arthur Kenzie Garner when officers arrived at his house following a call for help from the residents. Investigators said immediately after the shooting that when deputies arrived at the scene, Garner began firing at them, who returned fire and killed him. On Saturday, however, Moore County Sheriff Neil Godfrey confirmed to WRAL News that the initial report was wrong. So, quote, at this time, we do not believe that Garner ever fired at our deputies. Surprise. Uh, out of Ohio and Cincinnati, we have a police officer who tased an unarmed 11-year-old girl for allegedly stealing snacks. Officer Kevin Brown is the guy. He was working off-duty as a security detail at a Kroger. Uh, according to police officials, subquote, Brown approached one of the girls, but she ignored his commands to stop and kept walking out of the store. Brown then fired his taser at her, striking her in the back. She was also charged with theft and obstructing official business. Her juvenile court date has not yet been scheduled. However, Hamilton County Prosecutor Joe Dieters said Wednesday the girl would not be charged criminally, adding that he supports an investigation into why a taser was used. Quote, generally with anyone under the age of 12, we want law enforcement to discuss charges with us. That was not done in this case. The Cincinnati police chief said that the officer did nothing wrong because their policy allows people to be tased who are as young as seven years old. Look, if you're a police officer in Cincinnati and you can't figure out how to restrain a seven-year-old or an 11-year-old without tasing them, you need to find another line of work. Uh, out of Oklahoma, we have the death penalty for public intoxication that you're never going to find out about because the judge decided to keep it all secret. This is an Enid. A judge on Tuesday sealed from the public a surveillance video showing a jail inmate dying after being confined in a restraint chair for 54 hours, more than two days. 
The video of the inmate's last 19 hours in the chair was to have been the key evidence at the preliminary hearing for suspended Garfield County Sheriff Jerry Niles and three other defendants. They have all been charged with first-degree manslaughter in the death of Anthony Huff. Uh, judge decided that releasing that video to the public would be very detrimental, which, you know, I'm not surprised. It, it's insane to me that a guy could be arrested for public intoxication and strapped to a restraint chair for more than two days straight. That is wildly inhumane. Uh, out of Oregon, in West Lynn, we have yet another situation where people are being arrested for their social media, but this one has a twist. So from that story, it says, quote, The city of West Lynn must pay at least $100,000 in lost wages to a police officer fired last year for racist posts on Facebook because his colleagues knew about his behavior on social media and did nothing to address it until it was reported by the media. Now, it, it, it's actually worse than that sounds, because when you read further in the story, what you find is that this guy was posting all sorts of racial commentary where he would call black folks ghetto rats, cockroaches, morons, uh, said it's a badge of honor to be called a racist by someone in the hood, and a whole bunch of other shit. Well, here's the money quote at the end. The arbitrator found that this particular officer's immediate supervisor expressed approval of some of Newberry's posts, but it goes beyond just the immediate supervisor because the chief, Terry Timaeus, and Captain Neil Henley, and Sergeant Mike Francis, so the entire chain of command above this guy, uh, actually liked, click the little like button on Facebook, some of the guy's posts. Uh, so that's your people in West Lynn, Oregon. Out of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, there's a deep dive on the city's corrupt cops. Uh, quote, an analysis of complaint records showed that at least 30 Philadelphia Police Department officers appeared to have drawn 10 complaints or more over the past five years. These records also show some officers, like Officer Pownall, who they talk about elsewhere, uh, received far more than average including one who received 19 separate complaints, averaging nearly four a year. And the reason why that matters is that theoretically, if you get three complaints in a year, that's supposed to trigger some kind of red flag for you to be monitored. Uh, but they didn't. So there's a deep dive on all this stuff. Uh, some of the key points, quote, all of these officers are male, most are white, and several were even partners or assigned to the same elite units in a few select police districts. A number were notably linked to excessive force lawsuits or other questionable shooting incidents that have cost the city hundreds of thousands of dollars in settlements and litigation expenses. Uh, Pownall had notably landed on the district attorney's do not call list. Cops kept off the stand in criminal cases due to past misconduct and all earned at least three complaints or more in a single year, theoretically triggering the department's own threshold for early warning intervention. But records show few of the most complained about officers ever faced serious internal disciplinary action, suspension, or reassignment. When you allow people to break the law, more people break the law. That's the entire basis behind broken windows policing that so many police departments still practice, except they don't practice it with their own internal discipline. Uh, out of South Carolina in York, you know, you've heard the phrase, a grand jury will indict a ham sandwich, but did you know they will indict ham sandwiches faster than you can actually eat one? Uh, a bunch of defense attorneys have filed a motion because the grand jury on one particular day approved indictments for 904 separate cases. The average time per indictment was 39 seconds apiece. So basically, if you go back to uh, episode 20, the Law 140 we did was on grand juries and their role. And theoretically, the grand jury is supposed to be a check on the executive to make sure there is, in fact, probable cause for charges to be brought. 
And if you're doing that in 39 seconds a piece, you're not actually doing your job. But I want you to keep in mind, and I'm going to give you a link to the story so you can read it. But anytime you hear a district attorney tell you he just could not convince a grand jury to indict a bad police officer following the extrajudicial summary execution of an unarmed black person, keep that story in mind. They can process 904 indictments in a day at 39 seconds apiece, but they can't indict dirty cops. Uh, so that's out of South Carolina. In Texas, in San Marcos, I'm going to give you the quotes on this one because this is some Orwellian-type shit. Well, I guess maybe it's more, yeah, is it Orwell or Kafka? I don't know. Uh, so from the story, it's a, and this is about ICE, by the way, one of my favorite government agencies. Uh, it says, quote, on July 18th, a cargo van transporting eight Central American mothers separated from their children under Trump's zero-tolerance policy crashed into a pickup in San Marcos. An ICE contractor was taking the women from a detention center to the South Texas detention complex in Pearsall to be reunited with their kids. Even though police said the van was too damaged to continue driving and the women reported injuries, ICE repeatedly denied the crash ever took place. ICE is pretending there was no truck. Uh, it continues, quote, according to a police report obtained by the Texas Observer and individual interviews with four of the passengers, the crash occurred as the group was leaving a Sunoco gas station just off Interstate 35. The van's driver was an employee of Trail Boss Enterprises, an Alaska-based company that provides transportation for ICE in Central and South Texas. The driver failed to come to a stop and T-boned an F-250 that was entering the gas station. The mothers told the observer the impact slammed them against the seats in front of them, resulting in headaches, dizziness, nausea, and injury to at least one woman's leg, which began swelling immediately. The four women said they were not instructed to wear seatbelts. In the accident report, a San Marcos Police Department officer assessed the damage to the van as a 4 on a 0-7 to seven scale and said the vehicle was towed. An ambulance was dispatched to the scene, but no one was taken to the hospital. The mothers refused to go because they feared it would delay or prevent them from being reunified with their children. For nearly three weeks, ICE denied the crash happened and ignored requests for information. Let me repeat that. For nearly three weeks, ICE denied the crash happened. The observer was first alerted to the crash the day after it occurred by immigrant rights activists in Austin. The next day, Leticia Zamaripa, an ICE spokesperson, denied the incident twice. So, quote, your sources misinformed you, Zamaripa wrote. There was no crash. The observer then interviewed four of the passengers. Meanwhile, ICE did not respond to three additional requests for comment. When informed on Tuesday that the observer had obtained the accident report, the agency issued a statement about seven hours later. The statement from my spokesperson, Adelina Preneda, says the incident was a, quote, fender bender, not vehicle crash that, quote, resulted in minor damage. Preneda added that both vehicles, quote, remained operable. However, the responding police officer wrote that the van carrying the immigrants was towed after suffering disabling damage. Preneda did not respond to questions about why the agency initially denied the incident and refused to provide information. I'll tell you why. Because ICE has become a rogue agency, and it needs to be abolished. Bring back the INS. Uh, out of Utah, in Enoch, you have the first rule of Fisk again. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. Uh, this is a story where I don't have time to go through the details, but essentially an officer shot a woman for wielding a screwdriver. 
She, if you look at the body cam footage, she's actually pretty far away from him. The screwdriver is not that big. She doesn't have it in a fashion where it's going to be a threat. He shoots her three times. Anyway, because of that, uh, the district attorney's office says he overreacted, but they're not going to charge him because they're pansies about it and say that they couldn't adequately prove requisite criminal intent. Uh, and the Enoch City Use of Force Review Board basically whitewashed the whole thing and said everything was reasonable because there was, quote, an immediate and severe threat, which if you look at the video, there is not. Anyone that felt threatened by that woman at that location with what she had in her hands is nuts. Uh, out of West Virginia. So this is the last story on the state-by-state -state criminal justice fuckery. This should leave us a fair amount of time for the Law 140. Uh, we've talked before about Justice Lowry, who has been indicted for basically spending taxpayer money on things he shouldn't and then confiscating the items that were bought. Well, that triggered an investigation. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And the uh, State House is considering articles of impeachment. One of the justices has already resigned, Menace Ketchum. He resigned last month. And then the White, uh, West, White House, Jesus, the West Virginia House Judiciary Committee approved 14 articles of impeachment against all four remaining justices. They're going to remove the entire West Virginia Supreme Court if this happens to uh, make it through their Senate. So the articles of impeachment are against the Chief Justice, Margaret Workman, and the Associate Justices, Robin Davis, Alan Lowry, and Beth Walker. They have all been charged with maladministration, corruption, incompetency, neglect of duty, and certain high crimes. Uh, Lowry is the subject of eight articles. Workman and Davis each are the subject of four, and Walker is the subject of two. And they cover a whole bunch of stuff relating to spending money they shouldn't have, approving payments to employees and contractors they shouldn't have, Lowry taking paintings and shit and using state cars like he shouldn't have, a whole bunch of stuff. So we'll give you a link to the story, but there's some serious drama going on in West Virginia with their justices on the Supreme Court. All right, so that covers all of the criminal justice fuckery that we have for you this week. Let's go ahead and hop into our Law 140, where I'm going to give you the background on the entrapment defense. All right, so this is about the story out of Chicago where Norfolk Southern Railroad and the Chicago police used a bait truck that was opened and inside it was a bunch of designer Nike shoes trying to lure potential thieves in, in an impoverished neighborhood in Chicago. Uh, if you watch TV, there actually used to be a TV show about bait cars that was the same type of thing. There would be a car that would be unlocked as they're trying to uh, convince people to steal a car. The car was remote controlled. It had a bunch of cameras and everything else so the police could take it over and, you know, haha, -ha, people thought it was some funny shit. Well, that prompted a bunch of questions from people on Twitter as to whether or not it was legal. Can the government basically incentivize you to commit a crime? And the short answer is yes, for better or worse, but that gets to the issue of entrapment. What does it mean? What is it about? How does it work? And it is something that has been around as a concept for centuries. It goes back to colonial times as a thing, and it basically meant back then that the government can't tell you to commit a crime. You know, a police officer can't come up and say, hey, I need you to go rob this place. Do it, do it, do it, or I'm going to shoot you or kill you, or if you do it, I'll pay you or whatever it is. 
and you do it, and then they prosecute you for it. There's just not a, a thing that from a political philosophy standpoint makes sense. So under the entrapment doctrine, if the government and basically created the crime in a nutshell, they induced you to engage in the criminal activity, any criminal charges brought against you for it would be dismissed. That's the nature of what entrapment was about. But of course, that has changed over the course of history uh, to the point where now it's, it's pretty useless, and we'll get into why here in a minute. But let's talk a bit about what entrapment is in the grand scope of criminal procedure in general. Entrapment is what is called an affirmative defense. So when you have criminal charges brought against you, you get to choose whether you're going to plead guilty or not guilty. By pleading not guilty, the state has to prove every element of that offense, every piece of the offense that makes it a crime, and they have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. So for example, uh, let's do the common law larceny because that's one of the longer things they teach you in law school. The elements to common law larceny, it's it, the, what the offense is defined as. It's defined as the trespassory taking and carrying away the personal property of another person with the intent to permanently deprive the owner thereof. So those are the elements. There has to be a trespass. You have to both take and carry away something that is personal property of another person with the intent to permanently deprive them of it. So if you trespass, but you don't actually take anything, it's not a larceny. If you take something, but it's your own stuff, it's not of someone else, it's not a larceny. If you take it, but you plan to give it back, it's not a larceny. It might be something else, but it's not common law larceny. So if any element is missing you're found not guilty. So that's the basis of it. You plead not guilty to a crime, government has to prove each of those elements beyond a reasonable doubt. And if you want more explanation of what that means, episode 29, it was one of our Patreon exclusives. It covers burdens of proof. So if you happen to be one of our friends of the FISC or higher, uh, you already have access to that audio. You may have already listened to it, but we go over the different burdens of proof in excruciating detail. The defense when they're presenting an affirmative defense, usually has the burden of proof of proving that by what's called a preponderance of the evidence. So if you if you were to liken this to a football field, and I'm referring to American football, not soccer, by the way, um, I'd li- I do that with my burdens of proof. So preponderance means you've just got over midfield. You don't have to get far. You just got to cross the 50-yard line. Uh, proof beyond a reasonable doubt is almost a touchdown. You don't have to cross the plane, but the nose of the football needs to be touching the white line, essentially. Uh, so think of that as far as how those work out. And then you have something called clear and convincing evidence, which would be like the 25-yard line, give or take. Uh, so as part of that setup, government proves elements, defense proves affirmative defenses. Uh, normally, that's how that would play out. But there's a catch because the government... As part of dealing with an entrapment defense, it's on the defense to prove that there was inducement there, that the government encouraged the defendant to commit the crime. But there is a piece that has to be proven called a lack of predisposition. Basically, the criminal who's been charged has to show that they had absolutely no predisposition at all whatsoever to engage in the conduct. The only reason why they did it is because the government was inducing them to do it. So there are these two different pieces, government inducement, lack of predisposition. Well, it's the government's job to prove predisposition 
beyond a reasonable doubt. It's treated as an element whenever an entrapment defense is going to come up. Uh, so it's a bit complex in terms of process because it is not how a normal affirmative defense works. So often what you'll have is that the government will put on their case, prove their elements. Defense will prove inducement and make the argument that there was entrapment. Then the government will provide what's called rebuttal evidence to say, no, wait, this guy was predisposed to do so. Uh, that's how it works in a lot of trials. You also will sometimes have the government prove predisposition as part of their case in chief before the defense puts any evidence on. Uh, how it's set up kind of depends on where you are, preferences of the judge, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but so in terms of the case law, I mentioned entrapment has been recognized back to colonial times, but it was not recognized as a thing for federal offenses, not recognized for crimes against the United States. Uh, until the mid 19, well, I guess technically the early 1900s. So remember, we used to have this period called prohibition, where the country was nutty enough that we thought we could ban alcohol use. And what happened, of course, was that people started black markets, gangsters moved in, you still had folks uh, selling liquor, they were just doing it illegally. Well, the case that enshrined the availability of an entrapment defense into federal law is a case called Searles versus United States. It's actually rooted in North Carolina. Uh, and as far as the facts go, it was a prohibition era case. So I'm going to read you some of the summary from the actual opinion. And it says, uh, quote, in 1930, Martin, a prohibition agent in Haywood County, North Carolina, heard from informers that Vaughn Crawford Sorrells, a factory worker at Champion Fiber Company in Canton, had a reputation as a rum runner. He arranged to visit Sorrells at his home in Sorrells Cove in Canton on July 13th, accompanied by three acquaintances of Sorrells. He had them introduce himself to Sorrells as a fellow veteran of the U.S. Army 30th Infantry Division who had served in World War I and was passing through the area. At several times during an hour and a half of conversation and reminiscing, the agent asked Sorrells if he would be so kind as to get a fellow soldier some liquor. Sorrells initially refused, but later wore down and procured him a half-gallon bottle of whiskey for $5. Martin then arrested him for violating the National Prohibition Act. Sorrells was convicted in federal court, largely on the strength of Martin's testimony that he was the only one who had asked about acquiring liquor. Three other witnesses testified on rebuttal as to his general reputation as a rum runner. The court did not allow entrapment to be raised, ruling it had not occurred as a matter of law. The appeals court affirmed the conviction, whereupon Sorrells' attorney petitioned for certiorari. The court granted it on the condition it was limited to arguing entrapment as a defense. So that's the gist of the, the facts. You had this guy who was selling bootleg liquor, and a prohibition agent basically did an undercover sting and said, hey, give me some liquor, please, 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 please. Once the guy finally broke down and did it, he placed him under arrest. Well, the Supreme Court in 1932 voted by 8 to 1 to reverse the conviction, to find that he had been entrapped. And I'm going to note that this ended up being really a quintessential opinion because there's a five-justice majority, there's a three-justice concurrence, and as you read through it, the two different approaches to dealing with entrapment are still encapsulated to this day in the majority opinion and the concurrence. Uh, so this is from the majority. 
some of the key points. They say is written by Chief Justice Hughes. They say, quote, it is well settled that decoys may be used to entrap criminals and to present opportunity to one intending or willing to commit crime. But decoys are not permissible to ensnare the innocent and law abiding into the commission of crime. When the criminal design originates not with the accused, but is conceived in the mind of the government officers, and the accused is, by persuasion, deceitful representation, or inducement, lured into the commission of a criminal act, the government is estopped by sound public policy from prosecution, therefore. Uh, estopped, estoppel, is a doctrine that says you can't do it. That's the gist of it. It's a legal term of art. Uh, The majority opinion continues, and it discusses this notion of inducement and predisposition. They say, quote, The predisposition and criminal design of the defendant are relevant, but the issues raised and the evidence adduced must be pertinent to the controlling question whether the defendant is a person otherwise innocent whom the government is seeking to punish for an alleged offense which is the product of the creative activity of its own officials. If that is the fact, common justice requires that the accused be permitted to prove it. The government in such a case is in no position to object to evidence of the activities of its representatives in relation to the accused, and if the defendant seeks acquittal by reason of entrapment, he cannot complain of an appropriate and searching inquiry into his own conduct and predisposition as bearing upon that issue." If, in consequence, he suffers a disadvantage, he has brought it upon himself by reason of the nature of the defense. So the majority opinion focuses heavily on predisposition, the predisposition of the defendant to commit the crime. And what they say is, look, we're already taking a a view of the government's predisposition when we're talking about inducement. If you pretend that the use of an inducement is really the government being predisposed to commit this crime, they're luring you into doing it, then it's fair game that the defense does the same thing. You chose to use this entrapment defense. You get to be cross-examined or have rebuttal witnesses or whatever else about your predisposition to commit crime. Well, the concurrence by Justice Roberts, Brandeis, and Stone says, no, that's not right. If the government is inducing you to commit a crime, your predisposition doesn't matter because the government is a runaway train at this point. And what they say in their concurrence is, quote, whatever may be the demerits of the defendant or his previous infractions of law, these will not justify the instigation and creation of a new crime as a means to reach him and punish him for his past misdemeanors. He has committed the crime in question, but by supposition, only because of instigation and inducement by a government officer. To say that such conduct by an official of government is condoned and rendered innocuous by the fact that the defendant had a bad reputation or had previously transgressed is wholly to disregard the reason for refusing the processes of the court to consummate an abhorrent transaction. It is to discard the basis of the doctrine and, in effect, to weigh the equities as between the government and the defendant when there are, in truth, no equities belonging to the latter, and when the rule of action cannot rest on any estimate of the good which may come of the conviction of the offender by foul means. The accepted procedure, in effect, pivots conviction in such cases not on the commission of the crime charged, but on the prior reputation or some former act or acts of the defendant not mentioned in the indictment. 
The applicable principle is that courts must be closed to the trial of a crime instigated by the government's own agents. No other issue, no comparison of equities as between the guilty official and the guilty defendant, has any place in the enforcement of this overruling principle of public policy. Now, of course, as a political conservative, I like the concurrence's view. I don't think it should be my government's role to manufacture crime. And if we're doing that, if my tax money is going to manufacture crime, I don't care about the predisposition of the person involved. The whole thing is void ab initio, void from the beginning, in my opinion. But for better or worse, that is not the view that the courts have taken. So the next major case is U.S. v. Russell. This was in 1972. And basically, an undercover narcotics officer was investigating the defendant and his uh, compatriots who were making meth. And one of the components of meth was something that was legal to possess. You could get it, but it wasn't easy. It's uh, phenyl-2-propanone, whatever the fuck that is. And this particular narcotics agent went to this guy making meth and said, look, I can get you some phenyl-2-propanone, but if I do that, give me a chunk of your finished product. And the guy said, sure, that's fine. They came into the agreement. The agent provided the phenyl to propanone and arrested the guy once the final meth was given to him. The court of appeals said that the conviction at the trial court was wrong because that undercover agent, by bringing in this necessary ingredient of the drugs, uh, basically it created this intolerable degree of government participation in the criminal enterprise. That's the language that the Court of Appeals used. Uh, and then the Supreme Court ended up saying, nope, you're wrong. By a five to four decision, they said that he should have been convicted. So the court starts off by reviewing the history of Sorrell's and subsequent case law among the circuit courts as it relates to entrapment. And what they note is that this particular situation is functionally different because the particular people were already making the drugs beforehand, they continue making the drugs afterwards, and because of that, they're not innocent bystanders who were talked into doing the crime by the government. The court says, quote, The record discloses that, although the propanone was difficult to obtain, it was by no means impossible. The defendants admitted making the drug both before and after those batches made with the propanone supplied by Officer Shapiro. Shapiro testified that he saw an empty bottle labeled phenyl-2-propanone on his first visit to the laboratory, and when the laboratory was searched pursuant to a search warrant three days later, two additional bottles labeled phenyl-2-propanone were seized. Thus, the facts in the record amply demonstrate that the propanone used in the illicit manufacture of methamphetamine not only could have been obtained without the intervention of Officer Shapiro, but was in fact obtained by these defendants. While we may someday be presented with a situation in which the conduct of law enforcement agents is so outrageous that due process principles would absolutely bar the government from invoking judicial processes to obtain a conviction, the instant case is distinctly not of that breed. Shapiro's contribution of propanone to the criminal enterprise already in process was scarcely objectionable. The chemical is by itself a harmless substance and its possession is legal. 
While the government may have been seeking to make it more difficult for drug rings, such of that which respondent was a member, to obtain the chemical, the evidence described shows that it nonetheless was obtainable. The law enforcement conduct here stops far short of violating that fundamental fairness, shocking to the universal sense of justice, mandated by the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment. So that became the new standard. Basically, the police could do just about anything, and it would be treated as not entrapment, not inducing people to engage in this particular criminal conduct. So then you fast forward to 1992, a case called Jacobson versus the United States, and this established kind of the outer boundary at the other extreme. So this was a case involving the Child Protection Act of 1984. That's the federal law that made possession of child pornography illegal, made it a federal crime. Uh, So basically before that act went into effect, Keith Jacobson had purchased a magazine that included photographs of nude minors. And because of that, he ended up on the magazine's mailing list. Well, in 1985, government agencies began investigating him Uh, And over the next two and a half years, from 1985 to 1988, they repeatedly sent him mailings from five fake organizations and at least one non-existent pen pal, uh, all promoting sexual liberation, challenging government censorship, a whole bunch of other stuff. Eventually, after that two and a half years, the guy bit and said, okay, send me some things. And after that, they ended up uh, arresting him, saying that he attempted to uh, get child pornography, and that ended up being a conviction. And the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed, saying, "Look, if you look at the um, if you look at the Russell case, all these guys did was send him solicitations to do stuff. You know, that's certainly less involved than buying the drugs and providing it to the meth makers." So we're going to go ahead and sustain this particular conviction. Well, here, the Supreme Court reversed, and they said, nope, Court of Appeals, you're still wrong. Uh, In this particular case, the guy should not have been convicted. And it's a very long opinion. I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but what I am going to do is read you from the uh, syllabus. Now, remember, we've talked before. The syllabus is not the actual case law. Basically, the clerks of the court condense what the justices write down to the key points so that you can read the syllabus and kind of get to it quickly. Uh, But from the syllabus, it says, quote, The prosecution failed as a matter of law to adduce evidence to support the jury verdict that Jacobson was predisposed, independent of the government acts and beyond reasonable doubt, to violate the law by receiving child pornography through the mail. In their zeal to enforce the law, government agents may not originate a criminal design and plant in an innocent person's mind the disposition to commit a criminal act and then induce commission of the crime so that the government may prosecute. Jacobson was not simply offered the opportunity to order pornography, after which he promptly availed himself of that opportunity. He was the target of 26 months of repeated government mailings and communications, and the government has failed to carry its burden of proving pre disposition independent of its intention. The pre-investigation evidence, the Bear Boys magazines, merely indicate a generic inclination to act within a broad range, not all of which is criminal. Furthermore, Jacobson was acting within the law when he received the magazines, and he testified that he did not know they would depict minors. 
As for the evidence gathered during the investigation, Jacobson's responses to the many communications prior to the criminal act were at most indicative of certain personal inclinations and would not support the inference that Jacobson was predisposed to violate the Child Protection Act. Now, you see this in here, certain inclinations, he was gay. That's essentially what they're getting at, but they're not coming out and saying it. The guy was gay, didn't know that there was going to be kids in a Bear Boys magazine. He thought it was just a gay magazine. Um, Court continues, on the other hand, the strong arguable inference is that by waving the banner of individual rights and disparaging the legitimacy and constitutionality of efforts to restrict the availability of sexually explicit materials, the government not only excited Jacobson's interest in material banned by law, but also exerted substantial pressure on him to obtain and read such material as part of the fight against censorship and the infringement of individual rights. Thus, rational jurors could not find, beyond a reasonable doubt, that Jacobson possessed the requisite predisposition before the government's investigation, and that it existed independent of the government's many and varied approaches to him. Uh, So as I mentioned, this is kind of the outer boundary of if the government gets to this point where they're targeting you for two and a half years, it's definitely inducement and you're probably not predisposed to do it. The challenge is that because that timeline is so out of kilter, it's very easy to distinguish that case from other entrapment cases, so it's not terribly useful as precedent. But that is the most recent Supreme Court decision on entrapment. So what does it mean today? Well, at the federal context, the United States Attorney's Manual, which is available online, what they use to train U.S. attorneys, actually has a pretty good summary of what it means. And what they say is, quote, inducement is the threshold issue in the entrapment defense Mere solicitation to commit a crime is not inducement, nor does the government's use of artifice, stratagem, pretense, or deceit establish inducement. Rather, inducement requires a showing of at least persuasion or mild coercion, pleas based on need, sympathy, or friendship, or extraordinary promises of the sort that would blind the ordinary person to his legal duties. Uh, Even if inducement has been shown, a finding of predisposition is fatal to an entrapment defense. The predisposition inquiry focuses upon whether the defendant was an unwary innocent or instead an unwary criminal who readily availed himself of the opportunity to perpetrate the crime. Thus, predisposition should not be confused with intent or mens rea. A person may have the requisite intent to commit the crime, yet still be entrapped. Also, predisposition may exist even in the absence of prior criminal involvement. The ready commission of the criminal act, such as where a defendant promptly accepts an undercover agent's offer of an opportunity to buy or sell drugs, may itself establish predisposition. Now, that's the U.S. Attorney's Manual definition. Some states, including the state of Illinois, actually put those in statute. Uh, So I don't know. I've got the text. It's the ILCS. I'm not sure. Illinois legal something, something. I don't know. But chapter 38, section 7-12 says, quote, A person is not guilty of an offense if his or her conduct is incited or induced by a public officer or employee or agent of either for the purpose of obtaining evidence for the prosecution of that person. However, this section is inapplicable if the person was predisposed to commit the offense and the public officer or employee or agent of either merely affords to that person the opportunity or facility for committing an offense. So that's the actual statutory law in Illinois. So taking all of this together, 
and applying it to the Nike shoe truck case. Um, we'll note first that the charge is being dropped, so there's no chance to actually raise an entrapment defense. But if the charges were continuing, an entrapment defense would likely not work. And the reason why is that the mere presence of an open truck full of shoes is not the type of inducement that the courts consider entrappable. You know what I mean? It's not coercion. It's not pressure. It's not repeatedly making a plea to someone, please do this for me. It's just a thing that's there. So if anyone was going to happen to rob that particular truck, they wouldn't be able to make the inducement prong. But let's assume for the sake they did, if anyone who was arrested and proved inducement, but if they had a record for burglary, which is what this particular thing was supposedly targeting, uh, they would likely be considered predisposed. So it was not going to work in either way. You're not going to have the inducement prong. You're already going to have the predisposition prong. So it's tough for a defendant, had they actually been charged, to win an entrapment defense with this particular case. So it's still scummy. It's definitely a fucked up thing to do. The police are basically manufacturing crime and they're targeting a poor neighborhood to do it. Uh, but it's not unconstitutional. It's not illegal. So that covers this particular Law 140 on the concept of entrapment. I hope you learned something and it all made sense. If not, let me know. I realize that when I'm talking in lawyer mode, things make sense to me that might not make sense to people who didn't spend three years of their lives going through law school. So feel free to tweet me if anything is confusing. Uh, if you liked what you heard, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star rating or a written review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you happen to get your podcasts. And as always, on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, thank you all so much for listening. I hope all of you have a blessed week. And I will hopefully talk to you next Monday, but it depends on what happens with the dog. So keep an eye on Twitter. Take care. <laughs>